I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn back to the New Testament passage that we read together from the Epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 2, and we'll be taking as our text this morning uh, verses 17 and 18. So, considering together with the Lord's help, Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the, son, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted." Hebrews chapter 1 opens with a glorious exhibition of the divine glory of Jesus Christ. And so we have uh, the author uh, collecting citations, seven different quotations from the Old Testament, chiefly from the Psalms, uh, to establish the divine glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is indeed true God. And like with Colossians 1, it gives us one of the most graphic and beautiful and heartwarming uh, displays of that divine glory. And in it, it shows us that the Lord is superior, that there is a supremacy that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is superior to the Old Testament prophets. He is superior to Moses. He is superior, we're told in chapter 1 to the angels. It's going to go on to speak about how he's superior to Joshua, he's superior to Aaron and Melchizedek, that there is no other that can be compared unto him. But then as we turn to chapter 2, the question comes, what about the fact that he is also true man? And so there's this anticipation that, you know, Christ is superior to the angels And yet, how is Christ's divine glory and superiority to angels compatible with being man? So you'll note how we we saw that in chapter 2 when we were reading it. There's a quotation from uh, Psalm 8 in which we're told that man is made a little lower than the angels. So if Christ is man, and if man is a little lower than the angels, how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the angels Himself being man. And what we discover in chapter 2 is rather than Christ's humanity diminishing His divine glory, it in fact displays it in exquisite beauty. The eternal Son was united with humanity so that as the God-man, He might magnify the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. And so chapter 2 lays this out, and you see a long list of proofs that demonstrate uh, all of this. We come then to the end of chapter 2 where it culminates. So at the the end of having proven that that Christ uh, being man actually magnifies the divine glory in His person as, as God and man, we're brought at the end to this beautiful Uh, conclusion. Angels in heaven worship one who is God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. 
and we do the same. But unlike the angels, He shares our nature and can sympathize with our weakness. So we're going to note three things, again, with the Lord's help uh, this morning, three things from these two verses. First of all, thinking in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ in His true humanity, we see, first of all, that He is made like unto His brethren. So first of all, Christ is made like unto His brethren. So look again at the text, verse 17, wherefore, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. So, wherefore, in, in, in accordance with all of the things that we've been hearing in, and seeing in chapter 2, in keeping with that, it behooved Him, it, that's to say it, it became Him, that it was necessary, in other words, for Him to be made like unto His brethren. It behooved Him means it must needs be that He would be like, made like unto His brethren in order to accomplish these purposes of securing the redemption of his elect people, he would have to die. And God cannot die by definition in his divine being. He is life, and all life is derived from him. And so it was necessary that the second person of the Godhead would would take into union with his person, would assume to himself a true human nature in order that as the God-man, he might be able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so we're told, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Now it becomes clear that this all things does not include sin. It doesn't include him being sinful like his brethren or guilty like his, his brethren because we go on to hear about that explicitly at, in, at the end of chapter 4. But also, given what is being said here, he would be unfit to save if he had assumed to himself what was itself sinful. He had to be a perfect, spotless lamb without blemish in order that he might offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so there's no original sin that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. No guilt and, of course, no actual sins that are to be found in him. No vile thought, no missaid word, no duty that is left undone. The end of chapter 4, verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet, yet without sin. And so here is the Lord Jesus. It's saying, wherefore in all things, that, that, that he, he assumes their entire nature. So the Lord Jesus has a true body, not just one similar to a body or like a body or resembling a body. It's a true body. And he has a reasonable soul, a human soul. In all things, he's made like unto his his brethren. And that's, of course, necessary. He he had all of that um, with the infirmities of an unspotted humanity. One of the the early church fathers, so if you go back to those early centuries, uh, there was one named Gregory of Nazianzen, who was what we think of as central Turkey now, the Cappadocian fathers. 
And he was, he was speaking about how Christ has assumed to himself, into union with his person, uh, a true human nature. And he emphasizes this point by saying, whatever is not assumed is not healed. And that's, that's a very terse, kind of compact way of stating it, but it's, it's, it's helpful, it's illuminating for us. Whatever is not assumed is not healed. If the Lord Jesus Christ had not assumed to himself an entire human nature and a true human nature, body and soul, then he would be incapable of saving us in those capacities and components within our persons as well. And so this is important. When we think children, you you think of what is depicted for us in, in the Gospels. There we see the Lord Jesus Christ hungry. He knows what it's like through fasting and through other means to have the experience of an intense hunger pain. He, knew, he, he, he knows what weariness of the body is. It's, it's finite limitations. It's, it's brokenness. Right? He, he knows the weariness that comes with all of that. He knows grief and sadness. He knows pain, both internal of the most acute kind, as well as external and bodily pain. He knows what it's like to be to be to suffer at the hands of of uh, wicked tongues and slander and in mockery and in reviling. He knows physical suffering, obviously culminating in his suffering and death upon the cross itself. And this is important for us. And young people, listen, it's important because we can sometimes think, well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man and we conflate things. And it's, it's actually a serious and grievous error for us to conflate these things. And we think of Jesus as superhuman, as if there was a combination of the divine and the human, rather than two distinct natures in one person, as our creeds teach us and as the Bible instructs us. Right? He wasn't free of those bodily weaknesses. The Lord Jesus Christ lived in dependence in dependence upon His Father. Christ walked by faith. He had to depend upon His Father for body and soul in His walk before the Lord. And so all of this human experience, sin accepted, was known to the Lord. We we at times feel utter exhaustion. Physical exhaustion. You've been there. There's physical exhaustion. There's even the physical exhaustion that can be associated with mental exhaustion. Sometimes it's even worse in terms of its heaviness. You, you, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is knocked out asleep in the bottom of a boat, not a cushy yacht, you know, not some great big you know, um, ocean liner, but in a fishing boat. In the bottom of that boat, sound asleep in the midst of a horrific storm. That's exhaustion. The Lord Jesus Christ knows of of these things. He didn't just appear as a man. He was the man of sorrows, quintessentially the man of sorrows, who lived in the Word and out of the Word, Himself being the Word, the eternal Word. You see Him in terms of His compassion, His compassion for the lost. Nine times in the Gospels, He looks upon the multitudes with compassion. 
you see his intense love for his disciples and his commitment to love them even to the end. You see his weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, the grief that he experiences, knowing full well that he is about to resurrect Lazarus, to call him forth from the dead, to display the glory of God in this miracle. And yet he looks upon those whom he loves, like Mary and Martha, and the grief and anguish and torment that they're facing. He's not untouched by it. He's grieved by it. You see his tears over the impenitence of Jerusalem as he stands looking out over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the heart cry of the Lord Jesus Christ, how I would have gathered ye as chicks under the wing, and ye would not. Right? His tears over the impenitent, the agony of death, and the grief being grieved at the hardness that he saw in the Pharisees and religious establishment. All of this was keenly, truly, acutely felt within the soul and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He experienced all the developments that are ordinary from infancy to full maturity, passing through all of those experiences except except sin. He is made like unto His brethren. This is a biblical doctrine that is non-negotiable to which we are called to believe and receive and to hold and cling and defend and, and so on because it is central, it is key, it is indispensable to the gospel itself and to the salvation of sinners. And so the Son of God was incarnate. But we see that He's incarnate for two, two more reasons. When we say He is incarnate, right? Children, uh, that, that word, that English word incarnate, comes from the Latin word for flesh. And so incarnate means infleshed, right? He, he had a human nature. So the Son of God is incarnate for two more purposes, to provide an offering and sacrifice for sins and to have a nature capable of human sympathy with us. And so, first of all, made like unto His brethren. Secondly, made propitiation for sins. Made propitiation for sins. Look again at the text. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That's our first point. Secondly, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He was made a propitiation for sins. This word propitiation is not one you're going to find on the streets, but you will find in your Bibles. And we, we, we see it for in 1 John chapter 2 and, and, and elsewhere. It's a theological word that's important for us to understand. When we're, when we're speaking about the atonement, we, we can speak of expiation and propitiation. Sometimes our, our minds kind of shut off at language like this. It's a blur to us. Propitiation is referring to the fact that Christ in His sacrifice appeased the wrath of God. So, to propitiate, the verb, is to appease, right? Christ satisfied. Christ pacified the wrath of God. He satisfied God's divine wrath in His sacrifice. That is a very important part of the gospel, 
Now, in our day and age, you know, people want to get away from this. And so, uh, in the modern translations, they take out the word propitiation in various places and just put in the word, the broader word, atonement, right? Because we don't want to think about God having wrath. We don't want to think about righteous indignation. We don't want to think about the fact that, that God is infinitely just and holy, And that as such, he will and must in his divine being punish sin wherever it is found and sinners wherever they are are found. And that that has to be addressed in order for sinners to be reconciled unto God. Men would rather lay these things aside and yet to do so is perilous. And so we insist, propitiation, Christ satisfies divine justice in reconciling sinners unto himself. He appeases the wrath of God. So he's made a propitiation for sins. In order for this to happen, there's a necessity of, of priesthood. There's no salvation without a priest. And this is planted in our hearts and minds early on as we're reading in the Scriptures and Old Testament history. The necessity of a priest for salvation. Again, children, sometimes it's helpful to have pictures um, If you want to think about the difference between the prophet and the priest, this is a little oversimplification, but it it, it gives clarity. The prophet is the one who is sent from God to the people and who says, thus saith the Lord. So the prophet's coming from God to the people to proclaim God's word. The priest is, you know, another important office. The emphasis more falls on the one going from the people to God. Right? So the priest is going from the people to God, and he's doing so as a representative of the people. And so he's making sacrifices on behalf of the people, and he's making intercessions on behalf of the people in order to speak on their behalf uh, before, before the Lord. And so what did the priest do? One of his chief responsibilities was that a sacrifice would be offered. Now, what's so beautiful is that all of these Old Testament pictures, their graphic imagery, the color, the smells, the sights, all of that comes to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And things begin to come together in Him that were separate in the Old Testament. So you had a, you had a priest and then you had a sacrifice. And the priest had to offer the sacrifice. But then we come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ And the two are combined. Jesus is the priest. And Jesus is the sacrifice. And so the New Testament describes him as priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. He's both the one being offered and the one doing the offering. Freely, willingly offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so this disparity, this enmity between God and men that has to be bridged is bridged in the high priest and in the one who as God-man serves in that capacity. And the the Bible tells us in this passage that he is a merciful one. He's a merciful high priest. Right? There's compassion. He's full of pity. He's full of, of, of tenderness as a high priest, that he is not distant, not cold, not far removed, but rather near, that there's there's not a, a detachment from his people 
as if he is, you know, carrying out this responsibility without a thought or feeling for them, but rather he's merciful in, the capaci- in his capacity as, as high priest. In other words, he is moved by and he is moved on behalf of sin-laden people. The heart of Christ in heaven is so moved with condolency and comfort. Right here, the angels in all of their glory and power and beauty and holiness and so on, they've experienced no pain. Right? What, what absolute nonsense when the Roman church deludes their people with the demonic doctrines and gets them to pray to, to angels who have no connection at that level or to other sinners, saints, and so on. When we have the glory of the, the one who is merciful in his intercessions on behalf of, of, of his people. In other words, I mean, the Puritans would say there is human dust on the throne of glory, right? The throne of heaven. We could also say there is a human heart upon the throne of heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is a merciful high priest. He's also a faithful high priest. He delivers all that he's promised. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's not like some of those in this world, right, who are like bleeding hearts and they mean well and they desire great things, but they're not able or they don't follow through and delivering what's needed. That's never the case. Christ is faithful. He, he, all of the promises are yea and amen in Him, and so He delivers on all of His promises. Every word He's given, every token of goodness and grace that the, the believing heart, in all of its trembling at times, latches hold of, the Lord shows Himself faithful and true in every one of those instances, and He is constant Right? He is care- in the careful consideration of all of the concerns of His people. There is never a single moment, not a nanosecond, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is not riveted upon every one of His people and, and in which He is pleading for them and interceding for them and upholding them so that in all of their temptations and in all of the trials and in all of the suffering and all of the snares and the beatings and batterings and everything else that happens, Christ is there faithfully upholding and sustaining, mercifully serving as a high priest. How often, you know, this is something that is is supposed to be the bread and butter. This is supposed to be at the core of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You open your Psalter and the words, His goodness and mercy you know, endure forever. His mercies endure forever. The Lord is good. That, that language is brimming in the Psalter. I mean, you get Psalm 136 where the line is repeated over and over and over and over and over throughout that Psalm. But, you know, half dozen Psalms open with those words and dozens of other Psalms include those words. And then it's interesting because in the Pentateuch, the first five books, you find that language coming out in the language of Moses. He is good and his mercies endure forever. And then in the prophets, it's the same and so on. This is, this is uh, language 
that is supposed to be woven or embedded into our hearts and minds, a confidence in his enduring, never dying, never diminishing, not intermittent, but constant mercy, the supply of mercy that flows from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great is his faithfulness. His faithfulness never fails. We are unfaithful. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Well, all of this in order that he might make reconciliation for the sins of his people. That he might make, more specifically here in the Greek, propitiation for his people. That he would offer himself as an atonement. Sin provokes God's wrath. If one soul were to commit one sin, and if that was what most people think of as the least of all sins, the nature and being of God is such that that one least of sins in a single soul would require eternal damnation. So holy and just is God in His divine being. Sin provokes His wrath. That wrath has to be satisfied. It has to be appeased. And it will not and cannot be save in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there would be no atonement unless the Son of God became man. There would be no atonement. There would be no sacrifice. The Redeemer must be the kinsman of His people, to use the imagery of of Ruth. Right? Sin came from man. And so the atonement for sin must be from one who is also man. Indeed, he has to be both God and man in order for that atonement to secure its end. But here, the emphasis in our text is especially on his humanity. The sinful humanity must be punished. God can't ignore it. And so here is the Lord. This atonement is founded upon the unity between Christ and His elect people. Christ standing as a substitute in the place of His people. And here the Lord, you know, His people being brought into union with Christ so that they are crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Head and body that are being head held together. And the punishment executed upon the head um, the body derives benefit from. You, you think of the language of we speak of capital punishment. That word capital, again, it's, it's Latin. It comes from the, the Latin word for head, right? Capital punishment refers to originally losing your head, right? Decapitation, to have your head cut off. And so it's, we, latterly, we think of it as the death penalty. You die and so on. But Christ is the head of his people. And, and as the, the punishment for sin is borne by Him, and the sword of the Lord's justice arises. The Lord turns, as it were, against the one who is His fellow, and the sword descends into the soul of Jesus Christ. He, he accomplishes as a, a legal substitute the satisfaction of divine justice on behalf of all of His people. 
Here is Christ who is being numbered among the transgressors. Here is Christ who is being loaded with all of the guilt, not of his own, but the guilt of all of his his people. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ taking all of the debt that sin is, all of the specific sins for every one of his particular people being attributed and credited to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ being made his so that he is, he is himself made sin without personally being sin or sinful. He is brought in such close proximity to sin as the sin bearer without in his person actually being sinful that we're told he's made sin on behalf of his people. You want to talk about suffering Here is one who is perfectly holy, the eternal God, united to a a sinless human nature. Everything in his being is repulsed by sin, right? It's the antithesis of everything that he is. And for the Lord Jesus Christ to be loaded with the sins of his people, to be brought under that, itself would have been excruciating in terms of soul suffering. I'm speaking apart from the additional soul suffering of the wrath of God being poured out into, into his soul. And so you come to the Psalms and all of a sudden they become alive to us. You know, we're, we're actually hearing the language of Christ when it says, you know, mine iniquities have taken hold of me and all of the language about the burden of being pressed under the weight of sin and so on. This is Christ who as the sin bearer is suffering on behalf of his people. What's happening there? Hell is being poured out into his soul. You know, one of the, the words that come from his lips are, I thirst. Where else do we hear that? We go to Luke 16. And there you have the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus goes to heaven into the bosom of Abraham. And we look at the rich man in hell. And what does he say? He says to Abraham, send Lazarus that he might bring a drop of cold water to place on my tongue, for I am under torments. Right? It's the language of thirst. What the Lord Jesus Christ is undergoing is the judgment and penalty and punishment for sin, hell, is being poured out into the soul of the one who is God-man. And he is drinking hell dry to its very dregs, lovingly, mercifully, mysteriously, beautifully on behalf of his own people. How so? Because having been punished on their behalf, it is impossible for them to be published for the same. There is no double jeopardy. That punishment can never be executed twice. And for those who have taken refuge in Christ and who have come by faith under the wing of him, who have laid hold of him by faith, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it is absolutely impossible. Satisfaction of divine justice has been gloriously, has been secured. And so here we have it. God must punish all sin. Indeed, all sin will be punished. The question is whether that will be punished in you, my friend or whether it is punished in the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of you. 
but it will be punished. And there's no escape from it. And so in the preaching of the gospel and setting forth the the merciful and faithful high priest, the one who looks not with disinterest, not, not, not disconnected, but engaged sympathetically upon the, the plight of, of, of sin-laden and broken people. The Lord Jesus Christ is set before us and we see here in Him the one who is able and willing to save all who come to Him by faith. That indeed He delights in those who hope in mercy. That the Lord Jesus Christ gathers glory to Himself when sinners turn from their sin and repentance and come by faith to lay hold of Him and put all of their confidence in who He is and what He's done. The angels in heaven are rejoicing over the repentance of a single sinner because the glory of Jesus Christ is being magnified in the heavens as well as in the earth. And so the Lord says, come, come all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Language of which he knows, as it were, without sin. He knows himself. And he's saying, come unto me. Come without money and without price. Come buy and drink. The Lord is saying to those who are thirsty that you are to come to him. He commands you. He invites you. He woos you. He warns you to come to him. And that as the, as the merciful and faithful high priest who has made reconciliation for the sins of his people, that he is able with the strength of his own right arm to save to the uttermost all who come to him. But then thirdly, he is made to suffer temptation. Verse 18, he is made to suffer. He's made man in order to suffer temptation. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. This word tempted can be used broadly and narrowly. So it's used sometimes to refer to trials, afflictions, as we we think of them. Other times it's used, as we would use it, in a more narrow focus with regards to the temptation to sin, right? The attempts to seduce and ensnare with sin. Christ was subjected to both. And he was subjected to both in an unparalleled severity, Right? He, he, he experienced long, continued, repeated assaults. Every variety, every degree possible for a personally sinless being. And we, as you come to chapter 4, you see this in even more detail. But hastening on, none of God's people have ever been tried as deeply or as sorely as Christ has. The most afflicted saints with the greatest and most acute sorrows have not gone to the depths that Christ went. The most beaten and battered with temptations to sin in this world have never felt the heat or power of temptation like the Lord Jesus Christ. He felt it more intensely, more acutely. He suffered. Listen, for he that himself hath suffered being tempted. This was real. He was suffering under temptation. Luke 22 speaks of his whole life being one of suffering such temptations. And yet he suffered and never yielded to temptation. You know, we, one of the reasons you know that you've never suffered temptation like Christ is, 
because you could never endure the degrees that he did without caving. You know, you're tempted to be lazy, to be proud, to be lustful, to be greedy, to be whatever. And as the temptation grows, you know, persons cave, even if it's in one degree or, or another. The Lord Jesus Christ never did. You say, well, pastor, what about this? I'm actually sinful. He was sinless. That does change the dynamic. Is it the case, therefore, that 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 disparity means that Christ didn't experience temptation with the strength that I did? The answer is no. The Bible says irrefutably, no, a thousand times no, if you're tempted to think along those lines. Let me ask you a question. If there was a barbell and it had a thousand pounds on it, and you, you, you had, you know, someone, a, a 10-year-old who comes and tries to pick it up, right? And they strain and they get beat face, you know, their face is beat red and beads of sweat. And they're pulling with all their might. They, they've attempted to lift it off the ground. And then you get someone who's huge, an ox, you know, a power lifter. And he comes and actually picks it up, deadlifts it off the ground. Who knows the weight? Who knows what a thousand pounds feels like more? The 10-year-old? Or the power lifter? You would say, well, surely the power lifter. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. The way of illustration or, or analogy, you know, you, you have the Lord Jesus Christ actually suffers the full length, the depth, the furthest extent of, of temptation without ever caving in the least degree. Sinless. He knows the strength. He's suffered longer, deeper under these things. Again, remember what we heard earlier about the, his own being revolted, his being, being revolted against sin. For us, there's an enticement to sin at times. For the Lord Jesus Christ, it was something revolting to him. And so Christ is not aloof. Christ is not detached. He's not indifferent when it comes to the temptations of his people. There is sympathy. There is sympathy in the enduring of temptations. Notice it says he is able to succor. It's not just that he has the power and strength to succor his people. It's saying he has the inclination. He has the willingness, the readiness to, 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 to succor his temptation. Do you believe that? I mean, do, do you believe that the exalted Son of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word in and above the highest heavens, that He is inclined and willing and ready as well as able to succor His people. He says to Abraham, is, any, is anything, we hear from Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Moses, is the hand of the Lord waxed short? Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? He's able, he's able to still Sucker is people. This older word, sucker, is such a beautiful word. He's able to come to the help, to the aid. It, it has the idea of relieving. He's able to relieve those who, who are, are tempted. And indeed, the word is actually in the emphatic here. You think of a parent running to the cry of a child in distress in the emphatic. That's the picture that we're given. Christ enters 
sympathetically into the, the sufferings and sorrows of his, his people. Who's, who's more comforting to you? You go into the valley of humiliation, into a trial, into an affliction, and someone genuinely loves you and they, they feel a measure for you, but they have no way to connect or identify with what you're experiencing. Then you have another person who's been through it all, who knows the grit and grime, who, who, who can taste the blood in their mouth, if you will, who's, who's experienced it, and they come and express sympathy towards you. Well, that's a different dynamic altogether, isn't it? And so it is. The Lord Jesus is best able to sympathize with His people by His experience and familiarity with the grief and temptations and sorrows. He is eminently fitted and disposed to help relieve His tempted people, ready to aid all who who cast their cares upon them. Right? The language of Peter, cast thou thy cares upon Him. For he careth for thee. Because he careth for thee. The believing soul is able to then cast their cares with confidence upon him. He was tempted and yet endured. And here is Christ especially drawn to the tempted. Especially drawn to the severely tried among his, his people. I mean, you, you can say to the, the believer who is especially afflicted, you have a special interest and claim upon Christ. Why? Because Christ is especially drawn to those who are tempted and severely tried. He's able to succor those who are, are tempted. But those who are afflicted those who rather are affected by the, who remain unaffected by the glory of the gospel, those who sit under the preaching of God's word and slight the Savior, who reject all that is in their own best interests. If there are any here this morning who find themselves in such condition, who, who can express the desolation? of the house of mourning in which Christ is not found. To be taken into those dark places without a Savior, without a sympathetic and faithful high priest. The wages of sin and the beginning of God's sentence against transgressions begins to loom large and heavy over the unbelieving and disobedient defiant and rebellious soul. There's every reason to quake under those things. But not so for those who are looking and running and leaning and holding onto the Lord Jesus Christ. What comfort, what consolation, what thanksgiving there is to the Lord Himself. Why? Because what a Savior. You come to passages like this, you push back as it were, from the Holy Scriptures open to us, and we have to conclude, what a Savior, none like Him, who is like unto Him, who is to be compared to Him. He is Almighty God, the eternal, unchangeable, infinite being of God Himself, and He is all tender man. 
both in one person. Here is wisdom, the wisdom of God, that that God the Son would be made man in order that as a sympathetic and high priest he might reconcile sinners unto himself and relieve those who are tempted. May the Lord draw out our hearts to glorify him who is the Lord of glory. Let's stand together for prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We confess that thou art God. We confess, O Lord, that thou art a great God and that thou art the God of all grace. And we bow down before thy majesty and we wonder at the beauty and mystery of the gospel disclosed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. O Lord, grant that we would see in him all that is beautiful. Grant that we would see in him that merciful and faithful high priest of God. Give, we pray, eyes to see, faith to believe, hearts to respond. Give to us, we ask, O Lord, thy help and blessing. But in all of thy giving, gather glory. Gather glory and honor and praise to thine own name. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.